Thank you, Corey and Mary and um, Ethan and Michael and Steve for reading. If you um, have a Bible, uh, it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bible to the book of Ecclesiastes one more time. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. If you're new, my name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. I would like to say welcome and uh, Happy New Year to you. If you don't have a Bible with you at church, then uh, feel free to go ahead and uh, grab one from underneath the chair in front of you. You'll find our reading in the book of Ecclesiastes on page 559 of those uh, church Bibles. And uh, let me get my slides pulled up here. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, we're going to begin reading at verse 9, I'm going to read all the way down to the end of the book, and this will be, I think, a fitting end to 2018, and uh, I pray a good setup for 2019. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 9, I'm going to read it, and then I'll ask for the Lord's help on our time together, and then uh, we'll pray and get to work. It should be 45 minutes or so. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 9. This is the word of the Lord. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying, and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and of much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let's pray together. All glory be to Christ, our King. Father, I ask that you would open our eyes and our ears this morning to your word, and that we would see your son Jesus, and in him we would find a sure foundation upon which to build our lives, not with wood or hay or stubble, things that would burn up in a fire, but with gold and silver and precious stones. Help us to see and realize that All other foundations are sinking sand, as my brother prayed earlier. But help us see that Christ is sure, and His foundation is secure. And help us stand on Him and on Him alone, for Jesus' sake. Amen. According to a Pew Research survey that came out earlier this year, 80% of Americans believe in God. 80%. So if you were to walk around your neighborhood, eight out of every ten homes 
believes in God. Which is really amazing. Which is why I think the conversations at your workplace are often so kind, considerate, loving, and Christ-like. Yeah, it's why this morning, if you were to go back to your neighborhood, there would be almost no one home because everyone would be at church. This is why Twitter is so full of rich, comforting, encouraging words. This is why everyone got along at your Christmas get-together. That's why no one got on one another's nerves. It explains why the nightly news is always talking about People helping the poor, people helping find homes for orphans and refugees. It's why we find that Americans are so unified politically. This is also why racism is pretty much gone in America. It's why police officers are bored and universally respected. This is why everyone is always telling the truth. Or has that not been your experience in America? If 80% of people believe in God, why has that not been your experience in America? Is everyone lying about believing in God? It could be. But I don't think so. I think 80% of Americans do believe in God. But could it be that believing in God is a different thing than fearing God? Could it be that one's belief in God is really no determiner whatsoever whether or not a person will keep God's commandments? I think that's the case. The Apostle James says that it's good for us to believe in God, but then he tells us that even the demons believe in God. The Bible teaches that the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom, is not actually believing in God, but fearing Him. Here in the last section of Ecclesiastes, the main speaker in this book is done. He called himself the preacher. His sermon is done. We've heard a lot from the preacher. We've learned a lot from the preacher. He's taken us along in his journey to discover the meaning of life under the sun. Let's do a quick review of what we've learned. The preacher has taught us to appreciate the good things in life, but while we appreciate those things, while we enjoy those things, don't hold on to those things so tightly because they're fragile. Because in them you won't find meaning in life. He's taught us to enjoy good food and good drink and family and relationships. But he has warned us not to make those things ultimate in our lives. Meaning is not found in them, but beyond them. Meaning may come to us through them, but meaning is not in them. And if we make anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the primary source of the meaning of our life, the primary source of delight in life and satisfaction, we'll be disappointed and we'll hurt others. It's a little bit like the, the little boy who holds on to his pet so tightly because he's afraid it'll run away that he crushes it. We've all seen the woman who can't find love because as soon as she finds a man, she puts so much expectations on him and he runs. We've all seen the parent who 
makes their children's success the aim of their life and drives their children away. We've all heard about the businessman who, who makes the satisfaction of his life his business success, and he sacrifices his family, his employees can't stand him, and even when he finds success, is miserable. Well, this is the effect. This is the effect of making a good thing which God gives into a God thing. Making a good thing into a God thing. Only Jesus Christ is capable of carrying the weight of your satisfaction and joy. Only Jesus Christ gives you meaning in your life. If you make anything else ultimate in your life, not only will you not find meaning in it, but you're, you're, you're becoming guilty of idolatry. And we usually don't think of idolatry in terms of, in those kinds of terms, we generally think of it as somebody, you know, carving up like a wooden statue and bowing down to it. But the Bible teaches that there are idols in our heart, good things that we turn into God things. And the Lord, in his great kindness, exposes the idolatry of our heart with these little flags, These little indicators that we're worshiping an idol, little indicators that we've all felt, things like anxiety, frustration, discontentment. For any time you're feeling anxiety and discontentment and frustration, it's because you're trusting in something other than God to bring you satisfaction in any given situation. It's because you're looking for something to do for you what only God can do for you. And thus we have the wisdom of the preacher of Ecclesiastes telling us over and over, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, and grasping for the wind. He says, finding meaning in things that are meaningless is futile. Meaning cannot be found in something meaningless. And so looking for things, looking for meaning from things in this world is, he calls, chasing the wind. Philosopher Peter Kreft called it a wild goose chase without a goose. He's not saying that there's no meaning in life. He's only saying that meaning cannot be found in the things under the sun. Because meaning comes from beyond the sun, where God is. And so here we come to verse 9. The preacher is done preaching. The editor of this book takes over. And the editor of Ecclesiastes seems to be writing Ecclesiastes as a letter to his son. Did you see that? He's sort of summarizing the message of the preacher. Sort of kind of encapsulating it all into one sentence. And here's what he tells his son. Son, fear God and keep his commandments. If you've ever wondered about the meaning of life, according to the book of Ecclesiastes, there it is. Fear God. Keep His commandments. It's really that simple. It's really that profound. And so we'll take this passage in two parts. You're welcome to follow along the backside of your worship guide. We'll look at verses 9 through 12 again. And then we'll look at the other section again. The first section we're going to call the preacher's collection. This is verses 9 through 12. Let's read it again. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. 
My son, the editor says, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and of much study is a weariness of the flesh. So the editor of the book explains to his son, this is what the preacher has done. He's collected all of these things. He's studied and weighed and collected it all, arranged all these many Proverbs with great care, he says. Well, we've seen some of the Proverbs that he's collected in this book as we've moved through it. If we're right in assuming that the preacher in Ecclesiastes is King Solomon, then the editor is likely also referring to the book in your Bible called Proverbs. Proverbs is a part of the wisdom literature in your Bible. It's largely the work of King Solomon. And 1 Kings 4.32 tells us that Solomon in his lifetime composed 3,000 Proverbs. The very best of them, we assume, he collected together and they became what is largely the book of Proverbs, which is in the canon of Scripture. The preacher sought to find words of delight and words of truth. Words of delight and words of truth. Any serious student of the Bible, any serious student of literature really knows that this is true. The Bible is stunning in its literary styles. There are turns of phrases, there are brilliant metaphors, deep symbolism, incredible foreshadowing that fill the landscape of the pages of the Bible. And not only is the Bible the finest literary work in history, the Bible is also perfectly true. These words of delight are also words of truth. And this man, this editor, collected all of these sayings in his teaching his son. He's being a good dad. He's teaching his son. Son, the Bible is beautiful. Son, the Bible is trustworthy. He's teaching his son to study the Bible, to appreciate the Bible, and to trust the Bible. Personally, I'm thankful to the Lord for giving me parents who taught me how to love the Bible. God told his people Israel to surround themselves with Scripture. He told them, talk about Scripture as you're getting up, as you're getting down, as you're sitting at your home, as you're taking a walk in the mornings and the evenings. Put them on the doorpost of your home. Put them on the driveway to your home. Write them on your heart. I love walking into some of your homes and seeing Scripture verses that you've written out on paper and attached to your refrigerator. I used to write, when I was trying to memorize scripture, I used to write them on three by five cards and put them in, on the dash of my car, a practice I picked up from my own father, of writing scripture. That way, everywhere you go, there's Bible in front of you. It's just always on your mind as you meditate on God's word. Wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever your station in life, read the Bible, study the Bible, fall in love with the Bible Trust the Bible and encourage others to do the same. If God has given you children, teach your children to love the Bible. If God has given you grandchildren, teach your grandchildren to love the Bible. All of us have friends. Encourage your friends to love the Bible. If you're a student, Show fellow students the beauty of Scripture. Now, if you struggle to read the Bible, if you struggle to understand the Bible, look, that's okay. That's okay. 
Ask for the Holy Spirit's help and keep working on it. Sometimes studying the Bible comes easy. Most of the time I found it does not. But precious things are rarely easy. If you need help in studying the Bible, understanding the Bible, get help. Your pastors, Pastor Brent and I, are here to help you. Lord willing, early next year, we're going to do another midweek class on how to read the Bible and study the Bible and teach the Bible. Find someone in this church who seems to know something about the Bible and ask them to join you in studying it together. Just start reading. If you uh, received a worship guide when you walked in, we included a little two-month New Testament Bible reading plan. We already have a Bible reading plan on our website. You're welcome to take a look at that one. This is just another version. It's just a little bit slower. So if you're not big into reading 10 or 15 chapters a day, maybe you just want to scale it back to maybe close to five, you'll make it through the entire New Testament in two months. I recommend you take that home, begin, be a good New Year's resolution. As much as I'm not a fan of resolutions, that's be a good one. What I appreciate about that list is it says day one. It doesn't give you the specific day because you can miss a day, repent of that, and start again. When you do, when you spend the time reading God's word, I think you're going to find what Christians have found for centuries. The Bible is sweeter than honey on the tongue. God's word is a delight. It's filled with joy and stability, filled with protection and assurance and peace. But if you're finding in your life there's sort of this roller coaster where one day you're just on a spiritual high and it's just like God has lifted you up, but then a week or two later you're down in the dumps and it's just like wallowing in sin and frustration and difficulty. If you're sort of seeing that pattern in your life, there's a chance, good chance, that what's not being steady in your life is the reading of God's Word. As you begin to give yourself in a meaningful way daily, opening God's Word, reading it, hearing from God speak to you, you'll find that those little ups and downs, they begin to level out and they become a steady incline as you're increasing in Christ-likeness. The reason that you find so much delight in the Bible is because you find God in the Bible. When you open this book, heaven opens to you. The Bible does not contain God's Word. The Bible did not become God's Word. The Bible is God's Word. And the reason that it's so sweet and delightful is because God's there. And God is sweet and delightful. Take a look at verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed. Unless you grew up driving oxen, it's not very likely that you know what a goad is. A goad is a long pointy stick that was used to drive oxen. Goads are used in some parts of the world today. A farmer would poke and prod his oxen with the goad in order to keep them going straight. It's not meant to injure the animal. It's meant to sting the animal, but it's meant to keep the animal on a straight line. If you know your Bible, you'll remember that before the Apostle Paul became a Christian, he was on his way to a town called Damascus to arrest some Christians, and the Lord showed up. 
And the Lord said this to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. In other words, why are you resisting my instruction? I've been tapping you on the side. I've been poking and prodding you in order to get you to come to repentance. And the more you kick, the harder I'm going to slap. Why are you kicking against the goads? The Lord uses his word to goad his people. When we stray from his path, we're headed into danger. God's Holy Spirit comes and uses God's Holy Word to convict and correct God's holy people. He's not trying, he's not doing this to harm us. He's doing this to help us. Sometimes, often in my case, the Word of God stings. And here's the point. The commandments of God are meant to move us to action. They're meant to move us to do something. They are information, but they're not just information. They're information that moves us to action. Of course, they sting. Of course, it's often action that we don't want to do. Of course, we kind of feel like, I'd rather be going in this direction. And then all of a sudden, the goad comes and pokes us in the rear and makes us turn back towards the straight path. And this is because, as we've learned in Ecclesiastes, the path of life is often very crooked, isn't it? And we think we know the right path, but God is the one who made the path crooked in order for us to trust Him. And so He comes along with His commandments to poke us and to prod us and to keep us on the line because God knows where the ditches are. God knows if we go too far in this direction, we'll fall and we'll injure ourselves. Or if we go too far in this direction, we won't be fruitful in His service. Often we want to kick against His goads. Often we try and duck His goads. You know what I mean by that? We ignore His instruction as if it's not there. And in both cases, the Lord keeps prodding us and poking us to lead us to the right direction. And this is for our good. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It does hurt. But that hurt, that pain is for our good. In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of the, of the book of Hebrews is telling us, explaining to us that often the Lord does bring us direct, correction, brings us discipline. And that discipline is often painful. But it's a reminder, just like when your father disciplined you, it's an indication that he loves you. The Father, the Heavenly Father, does the same for us. This is what... Hebrews 12, 11 says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God's word stings. And it's meant to. And it's how we know God loves us. It's meant for our good. It's meant to move us to right action. It's meant for His glory. It's meant for our joy. Notice there at the end of verse 11. These words, these painful words, they're given by one shepherd. Shepherd is probably capitalized in your Bible. The one shepherd there is likely a reference to God. It seems that this is a statement of the divine authority of God's word. These words are given to us by one shepherd, the shepherd who loves us. The editor 
of Ecclesiastes is teaching his son to trust the Bible as God's authoritative word. Did you know that Jesus trusted and obeyed God's word? Jesus believed the Bible was trustworthy. Jesus believed it was perfect. Jesus believed it did not contain errors. Jesus believed it was authoritative. Jesus believed in the historicity of the Bible. Meaning he believed it told true history. Jesus didn't think the Bible was full of collections of fables and fairy tales and legends. He believed the Bible was true. He once prayed to the Father, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. How important is that in our day? We live in a day when churches all around us, entire denominations, in fact, deny the inerrancy of Scripture. And in so doing, they've made a shipwreck of their lives, of their churches, even of their entire denomination. Brothers and sisters, pray for those churches. There are some times when we get up here on Sunday and we do the congregational prayer and we pray for other churches, churches that we sometimes believe are probably not preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're praying for them because we want them to. Many Christian traditions began with a passionate fire for God's word and God's truth, but then they succumbed to the philosophies of the age. They left inerrancy in the past and the Lord has taken away their lampstand, their witness to a dying world. We want to pray for them. And just like we pray for them, we also want to pray that the Lord would spare us from making that same error. I want to speak to to the members for just a moment. If you are a member in this church, listen to me. Renew your commitment to doing everything that you can to ensure that the Bible is preached here The Bible is prayed here. The Bible is sang here. And the moment that myself or any pastor fills this pulpit and preaches a gospel other than the one inside this book, do what you can. Use the authority God has given you as the congregation to fire that pastor. It is your responsibility, members of this church, to maintain and to ensure that the gospel of Jesus Christ is being preached from this pulpit. And when it is not, to know it, to say something, and to do something about it. This is why we hold membership here at Cornerstone to be very important, very meaningful. Hear the editor's advice to his son in verse 12. Beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. This is not a banishment on all books but the Bible. But this is a warning to keep the Bible central. Extra biblical books are useful to us only so far as they help us to understand the Bible. They're not authoritative and they are not divinely inspired. They may be useful, but only the Bible is ultimate. The preacher's collection, these words of delight, these words of truth are given to us, stinging as they do sometimes, are meant to move us to action, and they carry God's authority. 
And so in light of that, let's go to the preacher's conclusion in verses 13 and 14. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And this is the end of the matter. This is the, everything's been heard. Here's the summary of the book, son. This is the great lesson of the book of Ecclesiastes. Fear God and keep his commandments. 80% of Americans may believe in God. But 80% of Americans certainly don't keep God's commandments. And that's because 80% of Americans don't fear God. Fearing God is one of those subjects that, though it's central to Scripture, doesn't get a whole lot of playtime in churches. I'm not entirely sure why that is. It may have one day. It doesn't now. I have some theories about why it doesn't. But we should understand what fearing God means, since it's such a major topic. Fearing God means bringing honor to God. It means revering God, worshiping God for who He is. Fearing God means giving Him the due reverence with our lives. It's sort of like um, we were talking earlier about a table saw. Anybody who uses a, a dangerous power tool like a table saw, in some sense, fears that table saw, or at least they ought to. And the moment that you f- fail to fear that table saw, you could seriously injure yourself. So I sometimes teach my kids how to use firearms for hunting. And in, in so doing, I need to teach them to fear guns. Not to be afraid of guns if they see one. But to give it the due respect that it deserves. Because used wrongly, a firearm could injure themselves or someone else. We, fearing God means knowing who He is and who we are. Fearing God means recognize that He's God and we're not God. He's the creator and we're the creation. He's holy and we are the sinners. He's the judge and we're the guilty. Fearing God means taking God seriously. And the way we show that we actually fear God, that we're giving Him due reverence in our lives is by... Keeping His commandments. We show that we understand who God is by doing what God says. In the same way that you show reverence to the civil authorities by keeping laws in the land. In the same way that children show that they honor their parents by obeying their parents' rules. Obeying house rules doesn't make you a son or daughter. Neither does keeping God's commandments make you a Christian. But Christians, rightly honoring, revering, and fearing God, will keep God's commandments. Reverence is revealed by obedience. Our reverence for God is revealed in our obedience to God. The prophet Moses linked the two. 
Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, this is what Moses said. Listen for these two things. Fear God, keep his commandments. Moses said, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways. To love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Jesus said the exact same thing. You remember when we went through the gospel of John, John chapter 14? If you love me, what does he say? Keep my commandments. One of the signs of true faith, one of the signs of a love of God is this, obedience to the Bible. A passion to kill our sin and to follow our Savior. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you might be one of those 80 percenters. I don't doubt that you believe in God. And I'm glad that you believe in God. But just understand that belief in God is not going to save you from your sins. And it's not going to get you into heaven. And you'll know that you actually believe in God. If you have a desire to follow Jesus, there is no faith without obedience. Faith without works is not faith. If you would be saved from your sins, if you would be made right with God, the Bible tells you how. In Acts chapter 2 verse 38, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, turn from your sins. Trust in Christ. And as your first act of obedience, be water baptized. If you'd like to become a Christian, talk to someone about that today. I'd love to tell you more about the good news of Jesus and the peace with God that's offered through Him. When you surrender your life to Jesus, we'll sit down, we'll talk about what it looks like to get water baptized. The whole church can come together and celebrate what God has done in your life. The editor of Ecclesiastes gives us two reasons for fearing God. Two reasons to fear God. This is where we'll end. The first reason, fearing God and keeping His commandments is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep His commandments for this is the whole duty of man. What does God require of you? To keep God's commandments. This is what will give you meaning in your life. The preachers found it. The preachers explained it. And the editor has made it concise and given it to us. Fear God. Keep His commandments. Of course, that doesn't answer all the questions you might have about life. There's much we don't understand about life. But this will give you purpose in your life, following Jesus. Search the scriptures. Learn what pleases the Lord. And do that full time. Of course, you won't do it perfectly. But that's just part of it too, isn't it? Part of pleasing the Lord means repenting. Whenever you learn that there's something you're doing that doesn't please the Lord. It's a, it's a wholesale dependence on God's Son. 
a wholesale orientation toward Jesus in all things. I've heard people say that church is full of hypocrites. And I think that's true. At least in my case, it's true. To my shame, I often say one thing and then go and do something different. You can ask my children about that. But Christians are the only people I've ever met who gather together at least once a week to admit they've done wrong and to ask God to forgive them of that wrong and to ask God to help them to not do it again. They may be doing that at the Eagles or American Legion or something. I don't know. I've never been there. But church is the only place I know of that hypocrites come and say, I'm a hypocrite. Please forgive me, Lord, and help me not be one. The second reason to fear God is to keep and keep God's commandments is in verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. God is a judge. And one day, every one of us will stand before the Lord Jesus and give an account for the life we lived. And he'll see our entire life perfectly. Every secret thing will be laid out. And it will fall into two categories. Good, meaning done for God's glory. Or evil, meaning done for something else. I think some have an idea that four or five thousand years ago, God was kind of ticked off. Sort of throwing fire and brimstone down on fools he didn't like. But then a couple thousand years ago, Jesus comes along and God sort of chilled out. He's tame now. And Jesus is sort of like a a newer and nicer version of the Old Testament God. And you can tell he's nice because he has feathered hair and soft hands and kind eyes. And he never says anything mean to anyone. Well, that'd be nice. Jesus is nice. But if that's the true Jesus and someone breaks into your house, I mean, nobody's hiding behind that kind of Jesus, right? I don't know where that kind of Jesus came from, but when I read the Bible, I find that Jesus is tremendously kind, tremendously loving, and I find that Jesus speaks hard words, rebukes foolish people, punches windstorms in the throat, and they stop, even chases bad preachers away with whips. When you get to the book of Revelation, Jesus' eyes are still warm because they're on fire. And he's got a sword coming out of his mouth and he's killing dragons and stuff. Bad stuff goes down. That's the guy I want to be around. Fear God and keep his commandments because we're all going to stand before that Jesus. That Jesus with the sword coming out of his mouth. That Jesus who destroys his enemies. You might have been able to hide some stuff from your spouse. Or when you were young, you might have been able to hide some stuff from mom and dad by sticking it under a mattress. But Jesus sees through mattresses. You might be able to hide some stuff from your guests by shoving it in a closet. But Jesus sees closets. He reads minds. You might be able to trick me with a double entendre and half truth. He's not tricking God. He knows your motive. He knows your thoughts. Every secret thing will be brought to light. 
And so we have to fear God because God is the judge. And we are guilty. Fear God to be sure. Keep His commandments to be sure. But dear Christian, since you are in Christ, you don't obey God because you're afraid of God's judgment. Christians need not fear God's judgment. And the reason is God's judgment has been poured out on Jesus already at the cross. God's judgment for your sin has already been paid for. So that Jesus will come along and say this to his people, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Christians don't keep God's commandments because we're afraid of God's punishment. Look, there's no punishment left. Jesus took all the punishment away. As parents, I don't even like saying that I punish my kids. I discipline my kids. God disciplines us, but he doesn't punish us. The punishment has already been placed on Jesus. Christians obey God's commandments because Jesus took our punishment. They know what God has done for them in Christ. They know that while they were guilty before him, Jesus paid that guilt off. And now they live free from the judgment of God and grateful for his grace. All of us will stand before the judge. All of us will have our deeds laid bare. And all of us will find at that moment that we have come woefully short of meeting the standards to enter heaven. But true belief in God means taking hold of Jesus, knowing that only He met the standard. Knowing that only He is righteous. And through His death, our debt is paid. And through His resurrection, we have life. And through His righteousness, we are made righteous. In Him, in Christ, all the blessings of heaven will be poured out on each one of us. Blessed be the God and Father of of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. If you're in Christ, every spiritual blessing that the Lord promises is yours. Not because you earned it, but because Jesus did and you're in Him. For that reason, Assured of this truth, we follow Jesus. He is our leader. He is our Lord. He is our delight. He is our joy. So whatever He commands, we obey. Not to earn His love, but because we already have it. Of course, there's much about life under the sun that is crooked and much more that we don't understand. Our good God has made it this way. And only He knows why. Only he knows the end from the beginning. And that is precisely the reason that meaning in life under the sun is found in fearing God and keeping his commandments. Because the road is crooked and we don't know the way forward. But God does and he knows where the ditches are and he loves us enough to give us his light, his word, his commandments to keep us on the right path, to keep us safe, to keep us fruitful and to bring us all the way to eternity. This is the message of Ecclesiastes. May the Lord write its eternal truth on our hearts.
Please stand for the prayer of confession. At the end of our services, we take a moment and we go before the Lord and we ask for Him to forgive us of all of the ways that He has exposed our sin. And so we take a moment here at the end and we pray together the prayer, a prayer of confession. Would you pray with me? O God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we praise You. To You belongs glory and strength. To Your name belongs glory. We worship You for who you are and what you have done. Make your name great in our lives and in our church. May the testimony of us all be that God is great, greatly to be praised. Lord, we confess to feeling the sting of your word this morning. We admit that we have so very often kicked against it, resisted it, ducked it. We've ignored your word. We've even attempted to make it say something less offensive Bend to our will. Lord, this is wrong and it's not our right. And Please forgive us. Lord, forgive us for presuming upon your kindness. So often we just go into sin telling ourselves that you'll forgive us. You will be merciful. And yes, of course, we know that you are, but this makes it clear to us that we do not fear you as we should. And in this way, we have sinned against you. We ask that you forgive us. We admit that we've considered your commandments to be a burden. We believe them to be restrictive, a hindrance to our freedom. Our hearts are sick. Our minds poisoned. Forgive us, Father. Heal our hearts. Fix our minds. Your commandments are for your glory and for our good. Help us to remember that. And Father, will you enable us to teach our friends and family to love your word? Will you enable the fathers in here to teach their children to love God's word? The mothers to teach their children to love God's word? As we prayed earlier, to give give us a desire to read the Bible. Give us the ability to understand the Bible. And give us a passion to share it with others. Too often your word lays dormant in our lives because we've allowed so many other things to garner our attention. Lord, disaffect us from those things and make us a people of the Bible. For the members of this church, Lord, fill us with your spirit to know your gospel so keenly that we're able at any moment to discern error. And when myself or anyone else preaches to them a different gospel, may they recognize it and use the authority you've given them to keep the pure biblical gospel of Jesus Christ central here at Cornerstone. Finally, Lord, we thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes. We pray that it would continue to take root in our hearts and bear fruit in our lives. That you would make Jesus central. You would make him our deepest delight and our highest joy. And that we would submit to the futility and the fragility of life under the sun. As your servant, your servant Augustine prayed so many years ago, may our hearts be restless until they find their rest in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you've confessed your sins and are trusting in Christ, here's what the Bible says over you. Psalm 103, verses 11 and 12. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us.
For that we thank you, Lord.